May God bless us as we open his word together with understanding and clarity. P.J. McGuire, the vice president of the AFL back in the 1800s, is frequently credited as the father of this concept of Labor Day. The first state to officially bring Labor Day as an official holiday was Oregon in 1887. It became a federal holiday in 1894. By then, 30 states had already decided that it was uh, important to have a day that honored the labors of everyday people who go to work as you see this. Now, for those of you who are interested, this is an important thing that we need to make note of relative to Labor Day. It's the last day that you can wear white or seersucker. So you've got like 24 hours left for your seersucker suit. Okay, Randy? So that's, you know, just letting you know that you better get that, you better get that taken care of. Uh, it's got to wait, I think, all the way to Memorial Day or something then, and, and I'm sure you'd like to wear it again. The Minnesota State Fair, as we all know, ends on Labor Day, and we're told by some part of the reasoning for this is to allow time for children to show 4-H projects at the fair. And so, okay, so that's why it happens, but we're heading back to school now if we're not already there like many college students are. But what is it with the southern schools? Somebody help me out here. Dylan, where are you at? Dylan. Yeah, Dylan Dahl, you're here somewhere, right? There he is. DJ, okay, you're already teaching again, aren't you? Yeah, what is it with them? Is, are you guys kind of like your own little place in the world of Minnesota? Your own little like, yeah, we don't do it like everyone else. What is that? He doesn't know. All right. Personally, I happen to love the fact that, that summer vacation, see, summer vacation for me, although I work right through the summer, is I don't have to get up and drive a bus for Adam, okay? The guy's a slave master, I'm telling you, okay? <laughs> Dude, I tell you, it's tough, it's tough. And so I, get to, I don't have to set the clock. So I love the fact that from Memorial Day through Labor Day, we get three full months, a little bit of May, a little bit of September. It's like, this is all right, now, I've read something that this week that said Americans average 178 school days out of the year, in China, 250. So, I, I mean, there may be some give and take on how long the summer break is, but uh, I like the long summer break because we live in a cold climate, and I like to enjoy whatever we can of the warm weather. As it turns out, many nations have chosen a day by which they honor their laborers, and we would all embrace that. I mean, so many of those fields that were uh, uh, demonstrated working areas in that song, that's why I wanted you to see it, is stuff we do. You see those scenes go by, and you go, yeah, hello, Kansas wheat, farm, wheat field worker, all right? It's like, hey, how many of you have worked the wheat field? Most people here have worked a wheat field at some point in your life. So um, we can identify that. We understand that labor is good. Labor is necessary. Paul said that if a man doesn't work, neither let him eat. Okay, there's a, if somebody doesn't provide for their home, they're worse than an infidel. We embrace labor as a good thing. But our text today, taken from the book of Isaiah, raises an interesting question. Isaiah 44.10, this is our memory verse for the week. Isaiah 44.10 says, Who would form a God or mold an image that profits him nothing? Now, it's kind of a rhetorical question. Nobody would do that. We expect a return on our labors. 
And if they don't give us a good return, now, it isn't just in terms of money. It might be money. It might be personal satisfaction. It might be respect that comes with doing a particular labor. It might be just the joy of doing it. I can honestly say that I can't fathom doing anything else for what God's direction in my life has been just because of the joy of serving shoulder to shoulder with you people. I just can't fathom doing another thing. So there are various reasons that, or, or returns that we see that, that, that minister to us. And we say, it's worth my labors because I get this in return. And if I don't get something in return, we either resent it if I don't feel like it's worth it. Remember my son, Mike, in a previous uh, airline that he was with, he's described one captain he'd fly with from time to time. And this guy was always complaining he didn't make enough money. He didn't make enough money. He was always complaining. And Mike said, but he never did any extra work to make the money. He had the potential to make it. He'd rather live in a place of resentment that he just felt like they should pay him more uh, rather than he should work a little harder and find out that there really was more money available to him. So we either resent our circumstances or we may come to a point we say, you know, it, it might be time to labor somewhere else. There's something here with what I'm giving to this job and what I'm getting in return, something isn't adding up. So I'm, I'm willing to bet, I, and I hope this doesn't sound in any way critical because I don't mean it that way, but, but in Jeremy's situation, all right, he's given to a job, and at some point you go, you know, the returns on this aren't what, what I might want. And I'm not talking financially. I'm just talking in terms of life and how it's coming back to me. And you begin to sense, well, maybe in this God is prompting us to seek something else, to, to look for something other place whereby my labors seem to return something more valuable and more satisfying at a personal level. So it's kind of a rhetorical question. Who would form a God or mold an image that profits him nothing? It's kind of rhetorical. Except it isn't. You see, in ancient days, and you know this, and so we're not going to take a lot of time demonstrating it, in ancient days they fashioned idols. Could you just take us through that, Paul? Would you, you got a minute? Can you make that work? I know I'm, I'm, I asked a lot of Paul today if we can translate. Okay, so there's one. We're not going to talk about them. Just you see things with the artifacts that they have found, they, they have dug up. Go ahead, Paul. Next one. Okay, there's something else. You see the crown on the head, okay, with the sun or something. Here's another one, an idol that's got both a... Uh, Human male things that are uh, human animal things that are blended together. Okay, another one. Okay, this is understood to be the oldest wooden idol uh, that has been found. Wood idols don't last a long time because wood breaks down. And so this is understood by some to be the oldest wooden idol. If you look at the top, it actually has the face of a human on it. Okay, which is you may notice later in, in our text. Okay, go right ahead. One more. And of course, we have all heard of the golden calf. We all know that there is this calf worship thing that took place uh, back in Egypt. Okay, thanks, Paul. That's good, buddy. Thank you. Appreciate that. So, in ancient days, they fashioned idols. Very common that that would be happening. In fact, Trent will tell you, in Nepal to this day, they still make idols. They still create things that they bow down and worship to and pray to at the outset of their day. Now, I'm just making a guess that in the ancient days when they made idols, I'm making a guess that some were professional idol makers. We know that to be the case. But there were probably also some garage mechanic type guys 
who made idols, right? They did it as a hobby. They did it. They thought it'd be fun. They want to try their hand at it. Uh, They didn't want to pay the outrageous price of the idol makers. And so some did it, you know, in their garages. Uh, So uh, that being the case, we understand that they fashioned idols. Notice what the scripture says about those who fashion idols. Verse 9 of chapter 44, those who make an image, all of them, are useless, and their precious things shall not profit. They are their own witnesses. They neither see nor know that they may be ashamed. And then our verse for today, we've already heard, who would form a God or mold an image that profits him nothing? Surely all his companions would be ashamed. And the workmen, they are mere men. Let them all be gathered together. Let them stand up. Yet they shall fear. They shall be ashamed together. Three times in that text describing whether the individual or his cohorts, maybe he's part part of an entire team of guys that make idols together. He said three times, he said, they'll just be ashamed if they fully recognize what they're doing. This is not something, when if they were to grasp it, this is not something that would bring respect or honor or joy. They would be shamed to understand what they are truly doing and the uselessness of their labors. So in ancient days, they fashioned idols. They were foolish. We see that in what the writer says further. Because if we go on from there, we first could note their work is unprofitable doesn't bring them a return. Notice verse 12. The blacksmith with the tongs works one in the coals, meaning an idol, right? He's he's now, he's a blacksmith guy. He's working in metal. Fashions it with hammers, works it with the strength of his arms. Even so, he is hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. He makes an idol, works hard at it, fashions it as a blacksmith, bows down to it, asks it to provide for him, to meet his needs, and where does he wind up? Hungry, weak, thirsty, and faint. It does nothing for him. So that's the one who works with metal. Verse 13, the writer goes on. The craftsman stretches out his rule. He marks one out with chalk. He fashions it with a plane. Now we're talking about wood. We saw that old wood one. It mar- he marks it out with the compass and makes it like the figure of a man. That's why I said that has the face of a human on it, okay? According to the beauty of a man, that it may remain in the house. He cuts down cedars for himself, takes the cypress and the oak. He secures it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a pine, and the rain nourishes it. So you see this guy, he's the guy that's going to work away. He's got this wide variety of woods that he can choose from. And you see the labor that he gives to this to select the right wood, the right size. He marks it. He's paying attention to it as, all this, as these trees grow. And he knows that's the one that I'm going to take next. So he's got a lot tied up in this. Then it shall be for a man to burn. Now he takes this. For he will take some of it and warm himself. Yes, he kindles it and bakes bread. Indeed, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it a carved image and falls down to it. He burns half of it in the fire. With this half he eats meat. He roasts a roast and is satisfied. He even warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I have seen the fire. 
And the rest of it he makes into a god, his carved image. He falls down before it and worships it, prays to it and says, Deliver me for you are my God. So he, all this effort that he put in watching these trees grow, waiting to harvest them at the exact same time, marking them, cutting them, planing them, shaping them into the image of a man that he can then fall down in worship. And he does that. But with the other part of that same material, he makes a fire. He just burns it. And he gains heat from it. Now that is good. Gaining heat from it. We have people who burn wood, okay? Talk to Jeff Hansen if you want to burn wood, okay? He'll be more than happy to encourage you on how to burn wood for heat for your home. That's a good thing. We burn wood in order to cook with, okay? Derek Converse loves this because it is not using non-renewable hydrocarbons. You could come up with new wood and burn that and cook over it. That's all good. That's fine in this entire equation. But what the writer is saying is the other half becomes an idol. The other half he bows down to. The other half he shapes into something that he then says, you are my God. And he expects that this thing which he has made burned one half, made an idol out of the other half, and somehow this is going to bless him, protect him, strengthen him. See, their work was unprofitable, like the guy who wound up hungry, weak, thirsty, and faint. Now their work is illogical. Burns part, prays to part. Well, that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Then the writer goes on to say their minds were impregnable. Verse 18, they do not know nor understand, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so they cannot understand. And no one considers in his heart, nor is there knowledge nor understanding to say, I've burned half of it in the fire. Yes, I've also baked bread on its coals. I have roasted meat and eaten it. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Meaning, create an idol out of it. Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside. He cannot deliver his soul, nor say, is there not a lie in my right hand? And the writer is saying, they, they can't even figure out the ridiculousness of what is before them and what they are doing. They don't even have the sense to stop and separate it out and look and go, wait a second, I burned it over here so I could cook with it or I could heat my house and over here I'm worshiping to it. That doesn't make sense. They can't figure it out because their minds are impregnable. They are so caught up in the darkness of what is there. So that's why I say they were foolish in what they did. They had no understanding at all. Should somebody fall down and before a block of wood? But that's what they were doing. So they were foolish with unprofitable work, illogical work, and impregnable minds that wouldn't let them see the ridiculousness of what is before them. And here's the last thing. Their foolishness was irrefutable. Because in order to understand this text, we have to at least take one minute to consider its context. And so notice what Isaiah was writing leading up to this and then coming away from it. So I want to pick it up in verse 6. This is before where we began 
We're going to bookend this thing. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. And who can proclaim as I do? Then let him declare it and set it in order for me, since I appointed the ancient people and the things that are coming and shall come. Let them show these to them. Do not fear nor be afraid. Have I not told you from that time and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? Indeed, is there any other rock? I know not one. And God, prior to this text, has set himself out and said, Look, I am the one, the first and last. I am the only true God. I am the only one worthy of worship. I sit alone in my power, my authority, my understanding. There's nothing like me. And certainly the wood and the stone and the metal that you have fashioned, they don't even come close. Let them prophesy. Let them speak ahead of time. Let them tell you what they're going to do. But I am bringing about, I am bringing to pass everything that I said I would do is going to happen. And then after that text... We read in verse 21, Remember these, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I have formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out like a thick cloud your transgressions and like a cloud your sins. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Is it not an interesting contrast? The beginning, he describes how, who he is. He's the only rock. He's the only one that is immovable, not shakable, uh, accomplishes everything he sets his hand to as opposed to these idols. And then at the afterwards, he says, return to me. But what did, did you notice this? I have formed you. You are my servant. You got to get that in the contrast of those who form idols, Right? Everything in between there was about those who foolishly create idols out of metal and out of wood and out of stone. That's what they make. But here's what I make, Israel. I have formed you. You are the one whom I have personally fashioned. And you are the one to whom I am calling. Saying, come back to me, the only true God. Don't go on and make a different, an idol that can do nothing for you. I am here telling you that I am available and ready to redeem you because you are mine and I have called you to myself. So this is Isaiah trying to get the people of Israel to grasp the ridiculousness of where they have come. Is that they have a creator God, the only God of the entire universe. There's not another God that exists. He is calling to them he is reaching out to them, calling them to repentance, calling them to come back. He says, because I, have, I will cleanse you of your iniquities. And I really will be a God that is profitable to you, that can answer you. And in between that, he says, but look at the foolishness that you have turned to. Would, who would form a God or mold an image that profits him nothing? It's not rhetorical in this context because it's exactly what they were doing. So here's what it comes down to, friends. Real simple. In ancient days, they fashioned idols. We've known this. They were foolish to do so because the idols were unprofitable, illogical. They did it with minds that were impregnable to truth. 
And God demonstrated that their foolishness was irrefutable because here he is calling to them to come out of this darkness, to fall down and worship one who really can be of benefit to them. They fashioned idols. They were foolish. It's just a simple question, friends. Are we? Are we foolish? The way we go about our lives. So I'd like to just throw this out. It's just something to leave with you to think on in the week ahead. And, and partly it comes to me, it's Labor Day. Partly it comes to me because we're moving into a new ministry season. You guys understand the ministry in the church revolves primarily with the school year. And then we shift to summer ministry, and that's different than the school year. But we're at the outset of the school year now. And you saw in your bulletin uh, all the things that are firing up now, right? If you looked at the bulletin the last couple of weeks, you think nothing ever happens around here. Well, that was the last couple of weeks because now we're shifting into fall ministry and everything fires up. But is it possible? This is just what I want us to think about. Is it possible that in this day, because this was the ancients, is it possible that in this day our idols are still things we expect to fulfill us that nonetheless leave us empty. And all the while, God is calling to us, calling to us, saying, turn to me. Turn away from that idol you're expecting to fulfill you, which will never satisfy you. Turn to me and let me get engaged in your life, and I will show you a redemption in a redemptive way that will change everything. See, that's what, that's what Carrie and Jeremy were willing to try. They were willing to say, Lord, okay, help us understand this. And it is a struggle. I'm not saying that that's easy, but I am saying that's where the answers are. Yesterday, I had a chance after the funeral for Paul to talk to my brother Bryant for a little bit here. Love this guy. Okay, and this is exactly what he pointed out. He said, man, we're trying to draw, walk the road. He said, but the temptation can be so hard. Absolutely, it is. Nobody argues that. I'm not saying this is going to be an easy road. I've never heard anybody say, wow, being conformed to Jesus Christ is a piece of cake. Because there are things that... And Wendy, thank you. As you were singing this morning, I thought to myself... Um, in fact, here's what I wrote onto my notes that weren't here before. What Wendy said. That's the application to what we were talking about this morning. What Wendy said. What she sang about. What Judy sang about this morning. About letting God... <laughs> being still, letting God begin to speak in to our lives. So here's just a few thoughts, but you know, all, I, I'm always aware, this is very personal to each of us, that God is seeking to minister to each one of us where we are at. And so it could very well be that a hundred different people this morning need to hear a hundred different things, but God's Spirit is able to do that if we'll take at least generally what, what we're talking about here, okay? How about if we just put this, an idol is what we put in place of him. That's our idol worship. That place where we just, you know, I don't think I'm going to let you in here, God. Okay? I've got my own little thing that I've fashioned here, and I, and, and, and I don't come crashing in on it. See, our minds become impregnable. That God's grace is trying to reach in and say, I've got something so much better for you because that's not going to do it for you. Let's just throw out a couple of things. And please understand, I have nothing personal with anyone. Will you please grasp that? Number one, somebody has observed a long time ago, work. Work can become the idol. Work is the thing. Work is, as somebody said to me one time, um, and they asked me to agree with them, work is life. 
right? I thought to myself, nope. We didn't have time for a conversation, so I didn't say that, but work is not life. Work is a part of life. Work isn't life. And they work very hard, and that's wonderful. But you know, somebody has observed that people expend their health to gain their wealth, and then when they're older, they expend their wealth to regain their health. It's possible to, that we could serve and bow down to the God of get more. Always got to get more. Always got to get more. It's almost challenging to us, almost frightening when Paul said, having food and raiment, let us be there with content. Wow. Because one of the things I've noticed in my life, the lives of Americans, we got a lot of stuff. We got a lot of stuff. Is it possible that sometimes we serve the God of get more? What about, this is a little, I feel like this might be a little sensitive. I don't mean it. What about the God of recreation? Now, everybody needs to be recreation, recreate. We all need a time of refreshment. We all do. That's why God provided a seventh day in the week for a day of rest. That's why there was a seventh year where the land was supposed to rest. Everything needs a time of rest. Life is this, this breathing of moving back and forth. But some people, I think, approach anything to do with free time, anything with discretionary time, I'll call it. It's all about just, it's mine to have fun with because it's my life. It's mine to have fun with. It's mine to have fun with. It's mine to have fun with. And so I'll gather as many toys as possible, and I will play with my toys, and I will feel good and satisfied with my toys. Well, where are those toys going to get us in the end, friends? You'll be encouraged to know, this is encouraging, that this last year we sent two people to Vienna, and the report we got back, the missions committee just met, the report we got back was, we want this church to keep sending missionaries. Now, there were some who came from another church, and that was fine, but the report was, will you please make sure you keep sending them? So the reason I point that out is just this. Is it possible that next summer, God's going to tap some new people on the shoulder and say, um, you've got this expanse of, of summer here. Can I speak into you about some stuff that maybe I'd like to do with your summer? See, for some of us, living that question, God what do you want me to do with my next summer as a place we'd never go? That God may want to call me somewhere, move me somewhere, use my time, but that's my time! I've got to have that, my time! And it, God says, um, let's, not, let's not forget the fact that I've made you for myself. I'm in charge here. Oh, if we can't have that discussion with God, is it possible that our recreation and our fun is our idol? Because we're not letting God in there, see? Yep, he's not entering that area. Uh, here's another one, and, and I won't go far with this, but just the question of substance abuse. Substance abuse. We live in a culture that believes, uh, I think, that, that very often our God is simply fun. Our God is rivalry. Our God is just to be able to get raucous and, and uh, just, just have fun because that's what it's all about, the fun. All right? And out of that, we get enslaved with substance abuse all too often. And um, just something to think about uh, that there are people who are like, dude, this is, the, this is the life I want. This is the life. This is living. Boy, when I can just go out and I can get high or get drunk and I can just, man, now I'm doing what I want to do and it's good. And I call that the God of fun. Yeah, that's enslaved. That's foolishness. There's foolishness in that. 
Not saying we shouldn't have fun. I love fun. If I get bored, I'm going to try and figure out a way to make things fun, okay? But there's a fun that is self-destructive, and there's a fun that is just fun, and it's good. So anyways, how about this one, friends? And this is, Wendy, this is where I appreciate what you had to say. How about this one? How about the God of resentment? I serve the God of resentment. That's what I mean by this. You know, I can't tell you how many, but I think my father was in this category. He never would talk to us about it, but I believe this is where he was because of just gleaning from some comments that he made. But the God of resentment is where we worship this question of bitterness. And I mean it this way. A church person did me wrong. I'm never going to church again. Church people are all like this. Church people are all hypocrites. Church people only want your money. Church people this. Church people that. Because a church person did me wrong. Well, guess what? I have no question a church person did you wrong. I've been at this for many years. I've been hurt by many church people. And in the process, I've had opportunities to hurt other church people. Because church people are just people. But that becomes the excuse to live in that bitterness for all those years. Just I'm going to embrace the bitterness. And Wendy, that's where what you were saying about being still is where God, I believe, would speak to us and say, hey, you've been serving the God of bitterness, of resentment all these years. I'd like to redeem you from that. Now, the question is, are we going to let him speak to that? Or do we go, nope, can't hear it. I like my resentment. I like my bitterness and I will fall down and worship him because he adds something to my life he's adding nothing to your life that's a foolishness like those who form a God or mold an image that profits him nothing living in bitterness does nothing for us but I guarantee you they're out there by the thousands and tens of thousands and it's just I only related it to church stuff we can go any number of directions where people just write everything off because one person hurt my feelings. A thought. Got a power? We call a friend telling me a number of years ago, he was, uh, he was in education, and uh, he, he worked under a particular superintendent. He said the guy was always manipulating people. Always manipulating people. Always stirring up strife. He was turning this person against that person. And he constantly wasn't about building a team. He was about keeping his place, keeping people on edge, keeping them off guard, and then keeping his place of power and authority going. That could happen anywhere. That's not just, I'm just telling you one, one person. Again, you could say in education. I'm not saying all educators are this way. I don't believe that for a moment. I'm saying that can happen anywhere where people are manipulating things in order to keep their power in order where God may want to speak into their lives and say, hey, I have an idea. Why don't you not be the top dog for the next year or two or three? Why don't you give up always having to win? Why don't you give up always having to prove yourself? And let me begin to transform you to become a servant with other people. See, if I can't, if I can't honestly acknowledge that before God, maybe power is my idol. Is that making any kind of sense? How about the God of hubris, pride, I never admit I'm wrong, never apologize, and I always have to win. Oh, yeah, that's a fun place to live. That's adding a lot to your life. I guarantee you, you're making a lot of friends taking that approach to life. A lot of people love being around somebody like that. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh, sure. You know what Paul said? See if this this ministers a thought to this. 
Paul, and it wasn't about of serving an idol god. It was just about where he was at in his religion prior to being, his life being invaded by the resurrected Christ. He said this, What things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. For him, it was his Jewish religion background where he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Where he just, man, he excelled in the Jewish religion. He said, I let it all go in order that I may win Christ be found in him. Okay. Huh. Is it possible that what Wendy, and Wendy, I happen to believe God just put that on your heart because he does those things. That what Wendy was, was speaking to us before she sang, you know what? There may be places in each of our lives, and I'm guessing there are, because none of us is perfected in Christ yet. Places in each of our lives where God is trying to reach in, speak into our lives, just as he said to the Israels, the Israelites, I am your rock, and I am redeeming you, and I am changing you, and I am making something good. These idols can never do it. Is it just possible that any one of these things, and there could be 50 more that could be represented in any group of people, is where God is constantly trying to... You're going to let me speak to that yet? You're going to let me minister to you there yet? You're going to let me redeem you from bowing down to that idol yet? Is today the day you're going to begin to crack the door and say, Lord, I have fought you as you've, as you've tried to speak into my life to find wholeness and goodness. And I have fought you and I've held on to this thing like an idol. I believed it would do be profit and good. And I've labored to keep it in place. And to keep you out. But today, Lord, I'm giving up the idol. Because in Jesus Christ, there's something better. So I'm going to be still before you. And let you begin to transform me in this area. And friends, here's a starting place. If we know we have an idol like this in our thinking and in our hearts. If we know it's there. And we know we're not at a place to do business with God. I believe it is totally legitimate to do this business with God. God, I'm not there right now. I'm being honest with you. I need you to even bring me to the point to get honest enough and open enough to let you change me. But I'm not there. So God, you're going to have to start there. But I am acknowledging there is something that every time you try and speak to me about it, the wall goes up. Does that make sense? Because if it was in my own flesh, I could just find the strength to just get better at these things. I would have done it a long time ago, but it's not. I need God to transform me. Just like he was going to transform the Israelites, he wants to transform his church. Do we have idols, friends? I don't know. I know if we do, we're pretty foolish. Just like those who actually carved them in wood, fashioned them from stone pounded them out in the blacksmith's fire we're every bit as foolish to hang on to these idols where we say God I'm not letting you in I'm going to stick with this thing Father thank you that your grace in Jesus Christ is so real thank you Father that you are in the process of transforming people into Christ's image but Lord I know my own life and so I assume it's possibly true in others who are here there's places you're trying to speak to us and we're resisting you Enable us to be still now to let you speak to us. Whatever our need is, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.